Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you today, Blaine? Oh, I'm doing well, all things considered. Good. Today we are looking at Rebecca, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, screenplay by Philip McDonald and Michael Hogan, which was further adapted by Robert E. Sherwood and Joan Harrison. Released March 21st, 1940, starring Laurence Olivier, Joan Fontaine, Judith Anderson, and George uh, Sanders. I'm going to ask our listeners to just bear with me as I do the synopsis. I'll try not to be confusing, but in this particular film, which was based on the book by Daphne du Maurier, our protagonist is an unnamed young woman, played by Joan Fontaine, who's in Monte Carlo as a paid companion for a wealthy socialite. She meets and falls in love with an older widower, Maxim de Winter, played by Laurence Olivier. The two marry and move to his estate, Manderley, in England. By all accounts, the former Mrs. De Winter, Maxim's deceased wife Rebecca, was a woman of refinement and taste. The naive and common new Mrs. De Winter, our unnamed protagonist, feels like she can't measure up thanks to the machinations of Rebecca's personal maid, Miss Danvers, played by Judith Anderson. Maxim seems put out by every attempt of our heroines to outshine his deceased wife's memory, which comes to a head when Miss Danvers tricks her into throwing a masquerade ball and wearing the same costume the late Rebecca last wore. Distraught and goaded by Miss Danvers, the protagonist almost commits suicide when a boat sinks off the coast of Manderley. The rescue efforts uncover the shipwreck and physical remains of Rebecca. But how could this be when she was declared dead and buried after being identified by Maxim years ago? Maxim reveals to his new bride that Rebecca was a cruel adulterer, she taunted him one night when she was expecting her lover, Jack Favell, who's played by George Sanders. The two fought, and as a result, Rebecca struck her head on some shipping material and died. Maxim took her body on her boat and sank it to cover up the accident. When a young woman was found shortly after, he falsely identified it as Rebecca. Relieved that Maxim truly loves her, his wife helps him plan to face the new inquest. The initial thought is suicide, but Jack Favell threatens to blackmail Maxim. He believes, prompted by Miss Danvers, that Rebecca was pregnant with his child and Maxim killed her in a fit of anger. Farvel threatens to turn letters over to the inquest if he doesn't pay him off. Instead of paying Farvel, he turns him over to the authorities. Farvel supplied the letters and demanded that they interview a doctor Rebecca had been seeing in secret. Instead of being pregnant, it is revealed that Rebecca had an advanced form of cancer. The inquest accepts the suicide theory, and a stunned Farvel breaks the news to Miss Danvers over the phone. The De Winters return to a Mandalay in flames. The fire started by a crazed Miss Danvers who dies in Rebecca's bedroom when the ceiling collapses on her. Yeah, so just a classic tale of romance. 
Yeah. So when did you first discover or experience Rebecca? It's probably been about 10 years, maybe maybe closer to 15. I first found Hitchcock in a film studies course I took in the late 1990s. And then since then, I've been you know, making a point of trying to, to collect and watch all of his films and learning that this one won Best Picture. This was one of the earliest ones I tracked down. Yeah, so it probably has been close to 20 years. I haven't actually revisited it until this podcast, not because it isn't good, but because it doesn't feel like a typical Hitchcock in a lot of ways. It is much more romance-oriented than mystery. Not that there aren't mystery and suspense elements. It's just not the, you know, the, the nail-biter that so many of his other films are. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think this is the first time I've seen Rebecca. I've been aware of it, and I, I don't know if this has happened to you before, Blaine. I went into this thinking I had seen it before, but then when the twist occurred with the true nature of Rebecca and when Maxim wasn't really making a concerted effort to mold his bride to be like his deceased bride, I've become convinced that either I saw a similar film or I've just heard of it and somehow by osmosis thought I had seen it. Oh, all right. Yeah, that's that's possible. So I don't remember that happening, but I've been logging the movies I've seen for a very long time. There could be ones where I thought, well, I saw them, I've seen it, but a lot of the ones I saw, I saw when I was so young that I have no memory of them. I have a vague recollection of Turner Classic Movies on one of their theme nights when I was in college doing a double feature of this and a film with Orson Welles. And the Orson Welles film was on first. And I'm just wondering if somehow the two merged in my mind somehow. It is possible. I mean, it is well regarded. We're talking about a movie that that uh, had 11 nominations the year it came out. Yes, I've, I've got the list here. It almost pulled off the hat trick. So it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress. So Best Director, of course, Alfred Hitchcock. Best Adapted Screenplay was Robert Sherwood and Joan Harrison. Best Actor, Laurence Olivier. Best Actress, Joan Fontaine. Best Supporting Actress, Judith Anderson. Best Film Editing, Halsey Kern. Best Music Original Score, Friends Waxman was nominated. Best Art Direction, Black and White, Lyle R. Wheeler was nominated. Best Special Effects, Jack Cosgrove and Arthur Johns were nominated. And then it's two wins were for Best Picture, which went to David O. Selznick and Selznick uh, Productions. And Best Cinematography, Black and White, to George Barnes. Yeah, it, it was a, a major year for it. it the uh, Best Supporting Actor category was the only category it was eligible for that it wasn't nominated in. And I, just letting the readers look behind the curtains a little bit, it, it was roughly December when we were getting this episode prepped. So I, due to the holidays, I wasn't able to watch as much as I sometimes do for our show. So I cannot say that I've seen everything where Best Supporting Actor was nominated. I still feel like George Sanders probably should have gotten a nod here. 
Yeah, that's that is possible. I mean, for the the best supporting actor nominations, I haven't seen Walter Brennan as George, Judge Roy Bean in The Westerner, which is what won. There are also nominations for roles in Foreign Correspondent, They Knew What They Wanted, The Great Dictator, and The Letter. I've only seen two of those, Foreign Correspondent and Great Dictator. And I can't point to a specific reason that Sanders wasn't on the ballot, but I, of those three, I don't know who I would bump to make room for him. It was a fairly competitive year. So it, it's one of those cases where, yeah, you know, you can't clearly say, oh, they messed up. Like, why is that person there and this one's not? We will be getting to some of those years. Don't worry. <laughs> but this is not one of them. Well, I just, and this is jumping forward quite a bit in the the film. In several ways, the turn of the film revolves around his characters. And I, I thought he did a good bit to liven it up. This is a modern day gothic tale. I feel like, or I say modern day, modern day to the audiences of, the time and and he brought a verisimilitude of i guess contemporariness that's not that's probably not a word but that's what i mean uh, to the film he he stopped it from feeling quite so old in some ways yeah he did he was a lot more modern and that's one where i suspect that's a lot of hitchcock's hand i haven't read the novel yet i did get my wife a copy for christmas but neither of us have read it yet but there are a number of characters like Jaff Favell in Hitchcock films. He he does have that lady stereotype, the 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 charmer who could also be very a very plausible con man and turn on the dime that kind of keeps you guessing but keeps you smiling while you're guessing. And that that's a lot of what George Sanders did. Nigel Bruce is also in here as Major Giles Lacey. He did a nice job in this, although it wasn't a taxing part. Nor was it a large part, but it's always nice to see Nigel Bruce as a big fan of the old-time radio Sherlock Holmes series. He was he was Watson on the radio for years, as well as some movies, because at the time, that's the way they were doing it. Same cast playing the same characters in both media. And I'm trying to remember who played... Out of the four that are, were the mains, the, the only other actor I thought of note was... The actor who played Rebecca's physician. Oh, Leo G. Carroll as Dr. Baker? Yes. Thank you, Leo G. Carroll. Yeah, there were a, a number that did quite well. And even though Leo G. Carroll, he had a, a small part, but it was a critical one, right? Yeah. He's the guy that comes in at the end and says, well, here's what's really going on, and wraps up the mystery. When you have a mystery element, the reveal at the end and the solution to the mystery can make or break that story. And the fact that most of this... It wasn't really a mystery. For a lot of it, you don't even know that there that there is a question about what happened with Rebecca. There's no reason to doubt the official story for probably the first 30 or 40 minutes of the movie. You, you might start to suspect when you first meet George Sanders, but if you do suspect there's something going on when you meet him, it's less because of the actual text and the evidence they're giving you, and more because that role as as the like the adulterer and the the other man has become such a cliche since then that experienced viewers will go wait a minute he fits this archetype so you might start to suspect based on familiarity with the archetypes that have become prevalent since this film and may in fact have started with this film 
rather than any actual evidence on screen. You know, I, I was wondering about that because his character in the film is a car salesman. And there's, you know, a certain uh, stock type particularly that came about in the 50s is when I kind of, material from the 50s is when I see it more prevalent of the car salesman as con man. And I'm wondering if some of that ties back to this. It could be. I mean, we get a lot of things here. This is, I mean, we've mentioned that Alfred Hitchcock directed. We should probably talk a little bit about this because this is Alfred Hitchcock's first American film. Up to this point, he was very well established in Britain. He's also one of my three favorite directors of all time. And the first, well, the second, I guess, to show up on this podcast because we have discussed Fritz Long already. Right. But yeah, so I, I, I'm going to take some time because, you know, I'm going to talk about Hitchcock and this is his only best picture winner. So all future conversations would be, why wasn't this even on the ballot? Go ahead, because I, I agree with you. I, I'm a fan of Hitchcock as well. Yeah, prior to this, I mean, he'd started in the London system, and that's where they established him as the master suspense, which is what he became known as. And like I said, he's one of my favorites, but I got to be honest, one of the reasons I think he's known as the master of suspense is because he's not that good at other genres. If you watch Juno and the Peacock, and some of his other attempts at comedy and family drama, they're not as effective. But if you go back to early suspense, The Lodger was one of the greatest silent films ever made, and one of the most innovative. He'd already done The 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes. He had done the first version of The Man Who Knew Too Much. So he'd had some major British success, but the British system didn't really give him the freedom and flexibility he was looking for. It was, you know, the studio was making movies and the next available director would take the next film in the pipe. And they didn't have as much control over picking the projects as he had hoped for. And he had wanted to adapt Rebecca for years. He just couldn't afford the rights, which David O. Selznick ended up buying. So when O. Selznick saw, well, here's this big British director who wants to work in ways that are a better fit for the American system and get paid better for it because that's the difference between the American and the British film studios, Selznick brought him over. And this is the, f the first of their three collaborations and it did not go smoothly. They both produce excellent films. You know, Selznick with this film became the first director ever to, or the first producer, sorry, ever to win two consecutive Oscars for Best Picture. He'd won for Gone with the Wind the previous year, and then he won for this, both based on you know, sweeping period novels. And he was trying to stay faithful to the book for Rebecca. Whereas Hitchcock's attitude, he would adapt things, but he would just take the premise. Mm -hmm. He actually said when he was interviewed by Francois Truffaut in the, those tapes, the Hitchcock tapes, which are available in public domain, and you should listen to them if you haven't already. That's not just Trey, but everyone listening, they're great. He was, Francois Truffaut pointed out that he's been criticized for how far he deviates from the source material when he's doing his adaptations. And his attitude was, if you want the original story, read the book. If you're coming to a Hitchcock movie, you're coming for a Hitchcock story with the same premise. So a lot of his films were a great departure, which is why if you watch the two versions of The Man Who Knew Too Much, they're hardly recognizable as the same film, even though it was the same director doing both versions. But that's probably more appropriate to discuss in the year of the second version. 
but as I said, they worked very, very differently. So Oselznik is more traditional where he wants lots of coverage, as they say. So, you know, have the, the actors waiting a while. It's not like when they're filming fictional projects in movies like Singing in the Rain, which we'll probably discuss, where they say, okay, action, the cameras start and the actors dive in right away. They would get coverage. So they'd have a few seconds sitting idle before they really get into the scene. And then they let the cameras roll for a few seconds after to give them the flexibility in the editing room to decide how soon to cut in and how soon to leave. Whereas Hitchcock would pre-plan in meticulous detail and do what they call cutting in camera. So instead of taking the extra footage and deciding where to cut it, he stops filming where he's going to cut it. When it was when he was making Torn Curtain and Paul Newman came and apologized because he had worn the wrong shoes to work so that the actual shoes the character's wearing were still at home, Hitchcock was not only able to say, oh, no problem, we're not going to see the shoes today, which a lot of directors could see. Mm -hmm. But he said, oh, don't worry, with the shots we're getting today, we're not going to see more than two-thirds of the way between your fourth and fifth button on your jacket. He had it that meticulously planned in his head before he started, which is an insane level of precision, whereas Oselsnick really loved lots of coverage, and he wanted his productions to be his films and stay in control, which is why... Gone with the Wind went through three different directors during filming, but still stays coherent and consistent because it wasn't really any one director's view. It was Oselznik's view. So Hitchcock and Oselznik graded hard in this film because they had very different processes because both of them were saying, no, when my name is on a movie, it is my movie. It doesn't feel like a movie of two parts stylistically. But if you're not familiar with the source material, th this is one of those films that takes a, a hard right turn. This felt like, I'm glad you brought up Juno and the Paycock. This felt like Juno and the Paycock or sabotage more for the first half of the film. Because if you're not aware of the source material, you're going to watch this thinking that it's more kind of a study in class politics because Joan Fontaine's character is very plain, very common, not coarse, but just ordinary. Well, I, I will give you the common. I don't know if I'd say Joan Fontaine is ever plain. Well, I just meant in terms of her dress throughout most of it, you know. Oh yeah. She is, she is definitely lower class. She has the job she can get because that's the, the job she can get and she absolutely needs to work. That's why she's the companion. I'll give, absolutely, I'll give you that. So, and, you know, right away, Rebecca's, you know, a sophisticate. As soon as she meets Miss Danvers, Miss Danvers comes at her with both guns blazing. Where's your staff? You know, is that what you're going to wear? Why aren't you planning the meals? You know, and even Maxim, you discover later why he's a little distant. But this is kind of a... Uh, what do they call it, a May-November or June-November romance. So he's he can come across as very patronizing, you silly little thing. He's always saying it with affection, but it, at the same time, it feels like he's putting her in her place sometimes. And there's a moment of suspense when Danvers is goading her right before the body's found. But as soon as Rebecca's body's found, the film switches. Oh, yeah, because at this point... It, we, what we've learned from exposition is that her body had washed up three months later, way down the river, 
Maxim had gone and identified it. So, yeah, it's not just, oh, we finally found the body of the, the woman who we knew was missing, which wouldn't be a big deal. But we found her body after her body had already been identified by, its, by her husband and buried. So what's going on there? That's why it's such a hard turn. Sorry, just adding that for the listeners, because I don't think we'd brought that up up to this point. No. And then you're in more comfortable Hitchcock territory. It, you have, you still have the mystery as to what went on. It's clear from Maxim's version that Rebecca goaded him to strike her and to fight with her. Jack is certain of that as well, but there's the motivation as to why did Rebecca goad him. And then the suspense starts to hinge on what will be the outcome of this inquest. Because I, I think I alluded it to it in the synopsis, but there's a very tender moment amongst all of this during Maxim's confession where it's, no, I love you. I love you much more than I ever loved Rebecca. You are the perfect woman for me. And I've been carrying this burden that I was afraid to share with you. And at that point, Joan Fontaine's character steps up and shows this hidden strength that she's had all this time. Because she's been strong in taking this from Maxim and his friends, probably unintended, but from some people intended emotional abuse. And now she's able to leverage that strength to help him through the inquest and the discovery. It works, I found, really well. And that's part of it. The first time I watched it, it didn't feel like Hitchcock because there is no suspense. It feels, honestly, more like Gone with the Wind than a Hitchcock film for about the first hour. But as you're getting into the second hour, and especially the last 30 to 40 minutes, so like Act 3 feels like all yeah. Hitchcock. And the, the first act feels like all Selznick. And the second, there is a relatively smooth transition of migration, which is nice. And given how much friction there was on set, because Oselznik wanted to stay closer to the book, Hitchcock wanted to deviate from the book, there was an early draft of the script that Hitchcock fought against, where Joan Fontaine's character had the first name Daphne in tribute to the novelist Daphne du Maurier. But Hitchcock was the one who says, no, this is, this is really a story about a woman trying to cope with filling someone else's shoes who has no identity in this world. Du Maurier was right not to give her a first name, and we are not going to break that. And I'm, I'm glad he won that fight, because it, it absolutely is the right call. That the only named identity we have for her is the second Mrs. De Winter. It, if, if she had a first name at all, it should be revealed to the end when they finally are in... They could finally be the happy couple that they should be. Let's talk about Manderley a, a little bit. Hitchcock is great with set locations or maybe more elaborate locations. You know, when you mentioned some of his earlier works, you know, uh, 39th Step, I'm thinking of the protagonist, you know, running across the moors or the man who knew too much with the empty pub set. Manderley looms as large over Rebecca as Tara did over Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I would say that's fair. You know, sometimes we don't go into this great of a detail when we synopsize a film, but the the film opens with a reminiscence of the ending. Joan Fontaine's character is 
uh, narrating, and she says sometimes in her in her dreams they're going back to Manderley, and she's kind of reminiscing when they're driving up and seeing the house on fire. And a, a lot of a lot is made in the movie of Manderley um, as an estate. It's a great, huge, sprawling house. There's an estate manager, which is a character who we haven't talked about much, who's one of the few sympathetic allies that Joan Fontaine's character has. Uh, again, not not everyone in this film is intentionally cruel. So uh, Nigel Bruce is Maxim's brother-in-law. He and his wife, when they make the references to Rebecca, I don't think are intentionally being cruel to her, uh, certainly not in the same way that Farvel and Danvers are. I, I didn't know if that was something that you would want to comment on about Hitchcock as well, since, uh, again, I don't know that we're going to get too many other opportunities outside of why did they overlook this as we go forward. Yeah, I mean, that's, I would agree, he does a lot of that. He, Especially the, the famous landmarks, he loves. So we'll, you know, if you follow Hitchcock, you'd be seeing a lot of that in, you know, North by Northwest, for example, ends at Mount Rushmore. And yeah, there, he does a lot of that. And, you know, we're starting to see that here. He's really gelling to become the the major director he would be. I mean, going through his IMDb, when The Lodger wasn't just one of the most innovative silent films of all time, it was only his third movie. And it was his first suspense. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot of that as it comes here. You're right. A lot of those trademarks are coming together. We're, we're seeing some of the Hitchcock style in terms of the way the film is shot and the set pieces. Mrs. Danvers is definitely someone who was directed by Hitchcock mm -hmm. because she can give you the creeps every single time she's on the screen, which is exactly what he wants. He wanted her to be unearthly. At his advice, she manages to not blink on film. You do not see the woman blink, which is something that's hard to pick out, but it, when actors do it, it always makes them seem off. As the audience, you know that there's something wrong with that person, but you can't quite put your finger on it. So it, it's a nice touch. And he also tried to... She wasn't walking naturally so that her shoulders weren't bobbing as she walks, as they do, to give her sort of an unearthly, inhuman quality. So th there's some of that there, but I think for 1944, Foreign Correspondent, which was also nominated for Best Picture, is a much more representative Hitchcock. Is this the first time that we've had a director have two films nominated for Best Film in the same year? It is possible. I don't remember. I, I didn't think about that until you mentioned it, but... You know, I, I put together a, a spreadsheet that tracks the winners. So while I dig that up, why don't you talk about what you would pick out of what was nominated for Best Picture in this year? Ooh, out of the ones that I've seen, the biggest contender would probably have to be Grapes of Wrath. I think I'm going to stick with Rebecca. The Great, the great Dictator is... Uh, the superior con so out of the ones I'm sorry I'm doing this poorly but out of the ones that I've seen for this year I've seen Rebecca the Grapes of Wrath the Great Dictator and the Philadelphia Story I've seen Kitty Foyle before but it's too long ago for me to really remember it 
the Philadelphia story is great. It's got Hepburn, Stewart, and Cary Grant in it. It's almost overloaded uh, with talent. And The Great Dictator is probably my favorite Charlie Chaplin after The Kid. And I really liked, on the drama side, I really liked The Grapes of Wrath. But I, I think I'll stick. I think Rebecca was the better made movie. Which is a little odd to say because John Ford won for Grapes of Wrath and he's a superior director in his own right, but or not superior, but a great director in his own right. Uh, but I, I think I'd give it to Rebecca. What about you? Yeah, for the ones that I've seen, so that's Rebecca, Foreign Correspondent, Great Dictator, and The Philadelphia Story, I would say that Rebecca is the best film overall. If we look at everything that was nominated that year, IMDb and Letterboxd both agree The Great Dictator is the number one film, then Shop Around the Corner with Rebecca coming in third. And they all agree that the next three, they, they disagree on the order, but they agree on the titles of the next three are His Girl Friday, Grapes of Wrath, and The Philadelphia Story. So yeah, they're all great movies. I would say, yeah, I do think The Great Dictator and Philadelphia Story are the next closest, but if you also look at the scale and the difficulty of getting the film done, then I would also agree that it goes to Rebecca. And to answer the earlier question, actually in the second ceremony ever, Frank Lloyd won as Best Director for The Divine Lady. He was also nominated as Best Director for Drag and Weary River. So the second ceremony ever, okay. he was nominated for three films. Okay. But at that point, they, weren't, they were nominating more for person than for the film. I, I admire the artistry in The Great Dictator, and I am a fan of Chaplin. It feels harsh to say that it's overrated, but to the extent that I think it's overrated, I, I, I think it gets points for it being the first one where the Tramp character speaks. When it speaks, it has a lot of important things to say, and that shouldn't be disregarded. But I don't think that one speech should ele should elevate it above all else. If that makes if that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it may have the best moment, but it's not the best picture. Yes. Yes. I absolutely love His Girl Friday. It, in a roundabout way, I got into film because of three actors: uh, Charlton Heston, Jimmy Stewart, and. Cary Grant, and I'll save the Charlton Heston and Jimmy Stewart story for another podcast. Cary Grant, I discovered, oddly enough, because at the Tennessee Performing Arts Center, for some reason, there is a portrait of him outside one of the theaters there. And there was, when I worked at Video Retail Store, one of the cheapest box sets I could get was a public domain set, uh, which had Penny Serenade, Charade, and His Girl Friday in it as kind of a public domain set of films. And I've always loved His Girl Friday. I, I think that's a triumph of dialogue and acting over plot, probably, but it's still a great film. I do recommend that you track down The Grapes of Wrath, not only is it an adaptation of a great work of American literature, but it 
in a lot of ways it's kind of a dramatic travelogue. And if anything, I think that's what put Ford probably over Hitchcock in terms of why the Academy may have recognized him. You know, he's directing Henry Fonda in what would go down as one of Henry Fonda's most notable performances. And the difficulty of kind of doing a traveling film, so to speak. That could be part of it as, and I I also think one of the reasons that Hitchcock missed Best Director here, even though Best Picture, or in this case Outstanding Production, and Best Director are the two most strongly correlated awards at the Oscars. I think that another element may be because someone who's directing for David O. Selznick doesn't have as much input as someone who's directing for anyone else. So if I were a voter in Hollywood who knew the way Oselznik worked, and this is Hitchcock's first job in Hollywood, so people weren't as familiar with his process, I would question how much of that direction was Hitchcock and how much was Oselznik. I could see that because even as we've been discussing it, you might think at first blush, Hitchcock and Olivier, that makes sense, a great British actor and a great British director, um, but in some of the reading I've done, uh, Selznick was kind of managing Olivier's American career as producer because he was also managing his his wife's. So, like, I started to wonder, was Olivier even Hitchcock's choice? Uh, he wasn't Hitchcock's first choice, but he was on the list. Okay, okay. The one that Hitchcock had to fight for was Joan Fontaine. Laurence Olivier... And David O. Selznick were both fighting for Vivian Lee, who Laurence Olivier was dating at the time, and who had just worked well in Gone with the Wind. There was also Olivia de Havilland in the mix, who was also in Gone with the Wind, but she backed out because she's Joan Fontaine's older sister and didn't want to compete with Joan Fontaine for the role. So it was really Hitchcock fighting for Joan Fontaine that got it. And Fontaine didn't know that Olivier and Lee were together and that Olivier was fighting for Vivian Lee to get the part because Hitchcock had kept that from her. So there was friction between them the first day on the set. So when Fontaine came to Hitchcock, who she knew was her champion, saying, you know, is there something wrong? Do you know why he's so cold to me? And Hitchcock, phenomenal director that he was, was not a good human being. And he saw this as an opportunity to help him get that feeling of isolation from his star that he wanted and told her, well, everyone on the set hates you. It's not just him. Wow. (laughs) To isolate her during the production so that the way her character was feeling was close to the way Joan Fontaine was feeling when the movie was getting made. So she isolated herself as a result of that because she thought that's what her co-workers wanted from her. Now, don't get me wrong. It's obviously the job of of an actor or actress to portray different roles and often play extremes. I don't think audiences could have accepted Vivian Lee as the protagonist here after she just played Rebecca from a different era in Gone with the Wind, if you will. If she could win the audiences over in this role, that would speak to her range and her acting talent. So I'm not going to say they wouldn't accept her, but I will definitely agree that it's an uphill battle. So it's entirely possible that she would have done it. I mean, it could have been like, you know, the, the Michael Keaton Batman or the Tom Hanks in Philadelphia or Heath Ledger 
as the Joker or even the Ben Affleck Batman. How many people have heard the casting for these roles and gone, no way, and then see the movie and went, oh, that actually really worked. I, I also do want to give a shout out to Philadelphia Story. I know we're not covering it, but this was Jimmy Stewart's Oscar winning role. Yeah. And it, and it's Catherine O'Hara's or Catherine Hepburn's nomination for it as well. Yep. She lost to Ginger Rogers for playing the title role in Kitty Foyle. And you mentioned that Shop Around the Corner was highly regarded on uh, some of the top lists. I don't know if you've seen it. My my wife and I watched it, and we liked Jimmy Stewart in it, and we liked Frank Morgan in it, but we thought the the female lead left us cold, and as a result, the overall film kind of left us cold. So I'm I'm surprised that just I, from my own personal taste, I'm surprised it rates as highly as it does. I don't know. I, I have seen it, not recently, and I saw it the week after we saw Sleepless in Seattle, because when we saw that, my mom recognized where it had come from and said, oh, no, no, now you guys have to see the original and track down the shop around the corner. So I had seen two movies that, you know, the story didn't really appeal to me. Jim Stewart is probably one of the most appealing actors in Hollywood. He's one of those guys that's, you know, I think the closest modern comparison would be Tom Hanks. Yes. He's one of those guys with range that everybody just likes. He, he's that immediately likable guy, even if he does things that shouldn't really be likable. I mean, if you look at It's a Wonderful Life, that's a classic. A lot of people love it. For some people, that's the only Jimmy Stewart they know. And yet, you know, when his date is in the bushes and he's got her house go going, well, we got here an interesting situation. And maybe I won't give it back. And the police would be on my side, too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that it... It, it's not a gentlemanly thing to do, and yet his demeanor makes it so that you're still laughing with him in the audience, whether you're male or female. Partly because he he plays it in a way that you think, you know, at least you honestly believe that's all talk, and he's not actually going to to make her come out of the bushes without the house coat or without the robe. Yeah, so I I think that that's what I remember from the shop around the corner. I wasn't that thrilled with the story because I had really just seen that story, and it was. You know, if not for Jimmy Stewart, that version of me in my early teens who was watching it probably wouldn't have stayed through the whole thing. It it didn't grab me. So I'm, yeah, if I were to rank the these top films, you know, looking at Letterboxd, I would put Rebecca at the top, Keep the Great Tick Dater in second place. I've heard great things about His Girl Friday and Grapes of Wrath. They're on my list, but as we said, we were, with everything that was going around around Christmas with both of us, and just so listeners know, I have, I'm have i a teacher by day, but I've gone from 17 years as a private tutor teaching whatever the students drop in front of me that day to the traditional classroom. So I'm coming up with lesson plans and all the materials for six high school math courses and two high school physics courses this year in a school where the students had cheating down to a fine art, so no two test papers in the room are the same. So I've had a lot on my plate this year, so I haven't watched as many films during the year as I had intended to watch or expect to watch in future years. But yeah, I will get to those. I would personally have Fantasia higher up on the list as well. Mm-hmm. And Foreign Correspondent is coming in at 13th. I'd say it's better than some of the ones I have seen there. If you are going for a more traditional Hitchcock film from 1940, Foreign Correspondent is the better suspense film, but... 
if you don't say, okay, we we're, if we're not specifically looking for suspense, it is not the better film overall, but it is the better film from that genre. Pinocchio might come up a little bit on the list too, because I'm seeing that on IMDb or on the letterbox at about 20th for the year. I think on the whole, I would agree with it just because of how my sensibility runs. And I, his girl Friday will be a good one to watch with your wife. His girl Friday gets the edge out over grapes of wrath for me. It's a, it's a more fun film. I, I guess is the way I would put it. Okay. And my wife's favorite star of all time, her Hollywood crush, is Cary Grant. So that works well. Yeah, so do we have anything else to say about this year before we move on to announcing next year's? I don't think so. All right, well, in that case, we'll ask everyone to join us on the 28th of next month when we discuss How Green Was My Valley. So that's the movie that beat out, well, Suspicion, another Alfred Hitchcock film. Sergeant York, Maltese Falcon, and Citizen Kane. Other nominees include Blossoms in the Dust, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Hold Back the Dawn, The Little Foxes, and One Foot in Heaven. So I'll hoping to rewatch Suspicion at least. Ideally Citizen Kane and Maltese Falcon too, but I've seen those often enough that I think I can discuss them intelligently without a more recent rewatch. And if all else goes as planned, we will have a guest along for the ride on that one. Awesome. All right, so thank you for listening. Thank you, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir, I want some more.